As we turn to the word of the Lord today, there is a shift that takes place in the book of Peter now, I, I, I think. And I was trying to imagine myself being one of the first recipients of this letter and trying to think through in my head, what were they thinking when uh, this was read to them or maybe when they gathered in small groups um, around the communities where this was um, written and duplicated to them? Because as you come to this particular text of scripture, the one that Christina just read for us, there are a number of just significant things that Peter mentions. And we may have time over the next two or three weeks, I'm in no hurry to get through them, to look at some of them. For instance, he talks about the second coming. He talks about the power in the coming of Jesus, which is um, a reference to the second coming, as we will find out. He also talks about the transfiguration, a, a momentous event in the life of uh, the disciples and in the life of church, the church for what that event signified and what it confirmed to us about Jesus. He also talks about the nature and origin of Scripture. We heard something of that today as people express their love for, their appreciation, their reliance upon the Word of God, which guides us and which guards us in life. And then if you were listening, you would have noticed a reference even there to the three persons of the Trinity, to God the Father and to God the Son and to God the Holy Spirit. And I wonder just what was going on in the minds of all these listeners as they heard these references and then took time to go back over the letter and read it maybe more slowly and more carefully and talk about it. And I wonder, as I was reading these things for myself, I wonder, do these things mean anything to us today? When we think about doctrines, is Peter just doctrine dropping here? We talk about people who name drop just because they want us to know that they know a certain person or they met a certain person or they're related to a certain person but it really is irrelevant to the rest of uh, what we're dealing with when we talk with them. And so is that what Peter is doing here? Is he simply doctrine dropping to show all the things that he knows? Or is he mentioning these things because they have a profound impact on the way that we think? And if they have a profound impact on the way that we think, then they have a profound impact on the way that we live. These are not just ideas that we float around in our head and then they kind of trickle off into nowhere land. These are ideas that really are to shape our very behaving uh, this side of eternity. And that's why we come to this issue of worldviews. I talk about it quite a bit and uh, I was captured by this thought again this week as I was working through this. And I was wondering, how do you make sense of the world that you live in? How do you take all the things that are going on and, and process them? How do you process your own existence and your own purpose for being in this world? What is it that impacts the things that you do, the way that you behave, the things that you say? Do you know? Do you even think about those things that are behind your behaviors and your thoughts? The reality is that something determines our actions. We don't live in a vacuum. We don't just act randomly every time a new situation presents itself to us. We can be like a leaf that's blown in the winds of worldly ideas and wherever the wind goes, we go and that's what we think and that's how we feel and that's what we behave and that determines um, our, 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 our emotions. Or we can set our sails by the word of God, which we've already talked about a few times here, and let the word of God guide us and direct us and shape us and inform our thinking and transform our thinking and thereby influence how we live. 
It's very clear to me as I continue to work through these things that my behaviors are attached to things that I believe and things that I tell myself. And the truth is, if you want to live in a certain way, and if you want to believe uh, or behave in a certain way, then you need to change the way that you think about things. You need to change your ideas because ideas will determine how you live. For instance, as a church for the last couple of years, we've been expressing this declaration that God is real. If you really believe that the God of Bible, the Bible is real, where it says in Genesis 1-1, in the beginning God, and then you begin to understand who that God is and why that God has spoken to us, that will change everything in your life. On the other hand, if you don't believe there is a God, and if you don't believe that God exists, and you don't believe that God is all-knowing, then that will shape your behavior as well. In fact, the Bible tells us that those who live as though God doesn't exist um, follow all kinds of passions and desires in your life. And so Peter is here working these things out with this group of Christians to let them see that they need to shape their behavior according to specific ways of thinking and specific world of specific worldview. For example, we've already seen, he tells us, make every effort to behave in a certain way. That is a de determinative focus on our way of living. It is a, a thought process, and we believe certain things, and so we say, okay, I will make every effort to behave like that. And then he talks about these certain qualities, seven qualities that we've been uh, tracking with as a congregation for the next, only a couple days now, uh, more. But these behaviors, he says, if these qualities are yours and increasing, that's a worldview, that's a way of thinking, that's a way of saying that these seven things that he talks about, which are really um, expressions of the character of Christ, if those are ours and increasing, that's a specific focus on our life. Then he says, if you practice these things, again, that's a way of living. We've determined that these are important. We've determined that these express a certain worldview or a way of responding to someone who came to our world. Then it will determine the way that we live. He says, in another place, be all the more diligent to confirm your election and your calling. In other words, that's a specific reference to how we believe God works in our life and how we respond to what God does in our life. It's part of this worldview. We believe that God exists, and that God calls us into a relationship with him, and that out of that relationship flows certain realities. In another place, he says, everything that you need for life and godliness have been granted to you. That's a worldview perspective. It's a, it's a, a worldview on a type of living, godliness. It's a type of focus in our lives. And then he talks about precious and magnificent promises. Well, these, these are future realities that shape our present living. And then that's, again, it's a worldview issue. We believe that God has spoken to us and that God has promised certain things to us, and those promises shape and determine our living. He even says that you have become uh, partakers of our divine nature. That, again, speaks about spiritual realities. That we are just not human beings of flesh and blood, that we are also spiritual beings. We, he talks about the righteousness of God, our Savior, Jesus Christ. That, that talks about a moral reality. And these are meant to shape our lives, not just the way we think, but the way we live. 
And at the very center of what Peter is saying is this world-shaping view of the second coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is what he says there in verse 16. For we did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the point of Peter writing this whole book. It's this second coming that, that, that Peter wants to, wants to remind these people of. It's a worldview issue. And what he wants to remind them is that there are a whole bunch of people and even false teachers who come from among the people of God who say that the second coming is nothing more than a cleverly devised myth. It's the result of um, discarding or the result of that kind of thinking, though, if you discard the reality of the second coming of Jesus Christ, it leads to moral and eternal disaster. That's what Peter will talk about. If you discard that, if you don't believe that, if that's not part of your worldview, then your behavior will exhibit that. And Peter is going to make a case as we go through it. The second coming not only has a purifying effect on those who believe it, but it has a profound effect on the orientation of our life. And that is the final event at the end of this age where one's eternal destiny is sealed. And if those aren't eternal, um, or, or if those aren't important worldview issues, I don't know what is. One uh, author, John Murray, remarked, in the unfolding of God's redemptive purposes... The next great apocal event correlative to or in, in, in relation to the death of Christ, his resurrection and ascension, and the outpouring of the Holy Spirit. So the next event that is in terms of greatness and power and um, importance as those three events is the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ in all his glory. And he says it's that event that looms on the horizon of our faith. There is nothing of similar character between the present and this apocal redemptive event. You see what John Murray is saying? He says that the next big event in Christianity, in Christian faith, and in God's plan for this world is the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. That is a huge event that changes everything. And so think that through with me. You see, the, the scriptures embrace a linear view of history. History has a beginning and it is moving towards an end. And at that end, is not, uh, it's not the end of everything. It is just the end of this age. And that ushers us then into eternity, the age to come. And so Peter is going to talk to us about how this future-orientated motivation, the second coming of Christ, impacts the present way that we live today. Notice what he says to you. He says, there will be richly provided for you an entrance into an eternal kingdom. That tells us there's more to come. That tells us that at the end of world history, there is eternity coming. He talks about heaven. He says that there is a voice that speaks to us or that spoke to Jesus out of heaven, that Peter, James, and John heard it on the mountain when Jesus was transfigured before them. 
Heaven is a real place. It is outside of, of our physical reality. He also tells us that there is this interaction between um, the spiritual reality of heaven and, and all that goes on there and all that is taking place there with the present reality of, of earth. He says the world is inexorably moving towards a final day. And Peter will tell us that final day is the day of judgment when Christ comes again. It's a coming day of the Lord. And at the end of that, then God will usher us into a new heaven and a new earth. Do you see how that shapes and should shape and should guide our thinking? This world is not all that there is. This world, when it ends, is not the end of everything we know. It's not the end of our existence. We're not simply annihilated and go into nothingness. And so the sure and certain hope of the coming of the Lord is to fill our thinking, which will in turn shape our living as we wait for that coming day. As the Bible says again and again throughout the New Testament, Jesus is coming soon to a world near you or to your world and to my world. But there are those to whom the second coming is nothing more than a myth or a cleverly devised tale. Table, or tale. The assumption that there is no God and that there is no Christ returning to the earth and that history is really a, 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 or the world is really a random series of events that are really meaningless um, is, has a profound impact on the way that we live also. This is what Peter wants to point out. There, there are those who believe that Christ is coming again and as a result it shapes their thinking. And there, there are those that Peter will say, don't believe he's coming again. Don't believe that there is a return, and that also shapes the way that we live. And when you read chapter 2, you, you see that reality, that they live sensuous lives, that they deny that there's any divine truth, that they don't really give a rip about an impending judgment that's coming, that they indulge in deviling uh, uh, passions, they despise authority, they have insatiable appetites for sin, they are enslaved by their passions. The fact that they don't believe in the second coming and all that surrounds that influences their behavior as well. And so I hope that as you think this through with me a little bit, and maybe you, you need to think it through again, that we will realize that doctrine matters and that what we believe that Scripture teaches us should have a profound impact on the way that we live. It should shape the way that we live. And this is why Peter is so intent on reminding them of the truth and warning them about those that say, the Lord is not coming again. And so as we come to this text this morning, it would appear that all Peter has said in the first 15 verses is preamble to the main point of this letter. In verse 15, he says, he says there that I will make every effort after my departure that you may be able at any time to recall these things. Well, these things that lead up to an understanding of the return of Jesus Christ. That this is not a myth. It's not a cleverly devised tale. This is something that is profoundly real and that has been spoken of in the Old Testament, is spoken of in the New Testament, and was given evidence of at the transfiguration of Jesus. And so Peter tells them, 
that I want you to recall these things because we didn't follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. That promise is central to the New Testament. In fact, the whole of the last days, and the last days are characterized by the inauguration of the coming of the kingdom of God when it came to us through Jesus Christ, and the the last days begin there and they will end at the consummation when Christ comes in all his power and glory and the kingdom of God is fully revealed here on earth. And all that takes place, all the events of the world, all the evangelism, all the battle to build the church will culminate when Jesus Christ comes again. The coming of the Lord will usher in the end of the world as we know it, the end of the age in which we have lived, the end of the age that has been going on for some 2,000 years. And with his coming, the kingdom of God will come in all its fullness, all its power, and all its glory. So the first thing is simply to remind us here that Peter is talking about the second coming here in this verse. And I I want us to just think this true because some, some would argue that what he's saying in verse 16 is a reference to the first coming of Jesus. But let me give you a few reasons why I think it's absolutely clear that Peter is talking here of the second coming of Jesus. The first coming of Jesus was not one in power. When Jesus came to this earth, he was born to a virgin, to a young girl who was engaged to be married. He was born in humility. He was born in weakness. He was born in a a stable room of a house. Few knew. Few cared. But what Peter is talking about here when he talks about the coming of Jesus is a coming in power. And as we will see when we spend a little bit of time in the text, the return of Jesus is going to be a display of extraordinary power. When Peter reminds them of the coming of the Lord, he uses a word, parousia, which is used 24 times in the New Testament. It's a word which means arrival or presence. And this word is is used exclusively when it refers to Jesus of his second coming. Everywhere it's used in the New Testament. Six times that word is used, it's just referred to the coming of individuals who come in a missionary extent. Once it's referred to the coming of Antichrist, but in all the other references, it's used to refer to the presence or the arrival or the coming of Jesus Christ to earth. For example, we have some very familiar verses that we quote when we talk about the coming, and it's the same word that Peter uses here, but Paul uses it in 1 Thessalonians 4.15 where he says, therefore, this we declare to you by a word from the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, the same word, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. A little bit later in 2 Peter in chapter 3, we read there how we are waiting for and hastening the coming day of the Lord. In Matthew 24, 3, we read that he sat on the Mount of Olives and the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will these things be and what will be the sign of your coming at the end of the age? Matthew 24, 27 says, As lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. And so Peter's reference here is clearly to the power of the coming of the Lord in the second time at the end of the age. And you go to chapter 3 of 2 Peter and you will see again and again that he refers to the second coming of Jesus Christ. I think it's important that we, as we think this through, 
At least it matters to me. And it might not be obvious to everyone, but Peter is talking here not about just the second coming of anyone. He's talking about the second coming of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In other words, it's essential to the apostolic doctrine that we believe that the unique historical person known as Jesus of Nazareth, the Son of God, will one day return to this earth with the same resurrected but real human nature with which he departed this world. In Acts chapter 1, verse 11, as the disciples are gathered and Jesus is about to be taken up into heaven, as Jesus is taken up into the clouds of heaven, the angels turn to the men and he says to the men of Galilee, why do you stand here looking into heaven? This Jesus, the same Jesus that they walked with, the Jesus that was raised by the power of God from the dead, this Jesus who was taken from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go into heaven. In other words, he will come visibly down from heaven. And so Peter has told us about this glorious Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He's one whom we are owned by and commissioned by in verse 1. He's one whose righteousness has been given to us, and it's a righteousness through which we're saved. Peter describes our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, a number of times in the first 14 verses. Loved ones, this is who's coming again. This Jesus of Nazareth, this eternal Son of God, he is the one that is coming in power. But again, Peter is reminding them, as it is true in the world in which we live today, that not everyone believes this. And Peter is reminding them, as I am reminding you and myself, is that I need to hold on to this. I need to believe in the truth of Scripture. And Peter drives them to think about two things to say, no, this is not something I have made up. This is not something I have made up to control a group of people. Peter then shifts his language and he goes from I to we. He says, we actually saw Jesus transformed or revealed to us in his power on the Mount of Transfiguration when his face shone and his clothes were white with, with purity. And we heard a voice from heaven that affirmed who Jesus was. And more so than that, he says, we have the sure prophetic word through which the word tells us again and again that Jesus is coming back, as we even read in Daniel chapter 7, a reference to the return of the Messiah or of Jesus Christ to this earth. He will come in all his power and all his glory. So here we are, close to 2,000 years after this letter has been written. Is this the first time you've thought about the second coming of the Lord for weeks or months? Does the return of Christ matter to you? Does it shape your thinking? Does it affect our gaze and where our minds go when they're resting or when they're relaxed? Are you assured of its certainty? Are you convinced of what the scripture says will happen when Christ comes again? Or is the second coming merely a, a theological pursuit and a, a quest for more knowledge about 
a particular theology of Scripture. There's any number of reasons why the second coming has fallen by the wayside. I think for some, it's simply, well, you know, it's been so many years and thousands of years and que sera, sera, whatever will be, will be. It's no longer a dominating feature of our, of our mental activity. I think another reason is that the world is really appealing. And the world is opposed to thinking about the things of God, the, 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 the lusts of the flesh, the pride of, pride of life, the passions of our life. It draws our, our gaze from heavenward, earthward. And we think about the things that we want to experience in this world and we enjoy the things that we experience in the world and we're proud of the things that we've accomplished in this world and the second coming of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ keeps getting pushed down and down and down. As I've already said, it's been a long time. It's difficult to hold on to a dream and to keep a dream alive. I think some of us have discarded the thinking about the return of Christ because it seems to be such a nutty area of discussion, so many different viewpoints on it. And so rather than get involved and try and think it through and even hold on to what we believe, we just say, ah, I can't know. But Peter wants to remind these early Christians. And the Spirit of God wants to remind you and I as well that Jesus is coming again in power. So as we kind of conclude, let me just sum up a few things about the coming of Christ that I think are really general things. Um, uh, I know there's different views, um, but these are things that I think are general enough that most of us can agree on and at least should affirm when we come to the scripture. I think probably the most obvious of all is simply that the return of Christ has not happened yet. Of this, we can be sure. Well, how do we know? Well, there's a number of ways that we know. I think we know because this world and this present age have not yet come to an end. You can go to the scriptures and you can find though there, there were occasions when there were those who are thinking or were proclaiming that the, the, the Christ had come again. And in fact, uh, Paul in 2 um, Thessalonians, he says this, Now concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, there it is again, the, the coming, the return of Jesus Christ, and our being gathered together with him. What a great day that will be when the church will be gathered together with Jesus Christ. The church being all of those who have put their faith and trust in him, Jews and Gentiles alike. Then we ask you, brothers, not to be quickly shaken in mind or alarmed, either by a spirit or a spoken word or a letter seeming to be from us to the effect that the day of the Lord has come. Notice the couple things that take place. He, he, he uses as synonymous the coming of the Lord and the day of the Lord is the same event of the same reality. And he says, listen, don't think that we, this has already happened. He says, because let no one deceive you in any way for that day, that day will not come unless the rebellion comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed who is the son of destruction. And he goes on. And he talks more about that. Peter does say 
that the day of the Lord will come like a thief. And on that day, heavens will pass away with a loud noise. As far as I can see, that hasn't happened yet. As far as I can see, the heavens as we know them still exist. There has not been a cataclysmic event in our world where the heavens have been destroyed. And so the day of the Lord, the coming of the Lord, has not happened yet. I think the second thing that we can be sure of is that the Bible tells us that Jesus is coming back to this earth, to our earth. But that the return of Jesus to the earth will be nothing like his first coming to the earth, which I've already mentioned was in humility and in weakness and with little fanfare. The return of Jesus to earth will be one of power and one of might. And the scripture says it will be a personal and a visible and a bodily return of Jesus Christ to this world. And every eye will see him. Nobody will miss him. It will be dramatic and visible. As John says in Revelation, behold, he is coming in the clouds and every eye will see him. Even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will wail on account of him. And as I've already read from Acts chapter 1 verse 11, the angel said, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking into heaven? This Jesus who was taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way that you saw him go. As they watched him go up into heaven, so we will see Jesus come down from heaven to earth to gather us to be with him. The scripture describes the coming of the Lord as a coming of power and glory. Paul says that the Lord himself, there it is, the visible, personal return of Jesus Christ. The Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with an archangel's voice, and with the trumpet of God. John describes it this way, Then I saw heaven open, and there was a white horse, and its rider is called Faithful and True. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. And his eyes were like a fiery flame. And on his head were many crowns. And the armies of heaven followed him on white horses wearing white linen. Loved ones, the return of our Lord to this earth will be a visual and an auditory feast. It will be like nothing we have ever seen. No performance of any band or any orchestra or any rock group or any event on this earth will even come close to it. For Jesus himself said, as lightning comes from the east and shines as far as the west, so will the coming of the Son of Man be. A glorious display of power and might. And the Bible describes it as a sudden return. Sudden in many ways. You can read uh, the parable of the ten virgins, five of whom were ready and five weren't. And uh, we can, you can read about how uh, there are those who will be distracted by the cares of this life and the worries of this world and the attractions of this world. And for those who don't know the Lord, the Bible clearly describes his coming will be a coming like a thief. That's sudden. It comes when you're not expecting it. It comes when you're not looking for it. Peter himself will say, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. Jesus himself describes the world as in, uh, in like pre-flood days. 
For as in the days of Noah, so will the days be in the coming of the Son of Man. And they were unaware until the flood came and swept them all away. So will the coming of the Son of Man be. Jesus warned in another place that the Son of Man is coming at an hour that you don't expect. This is why we are told to watch. This is why we are told to wait. This is why the Bible doesn't tell us the exact hour or the day or the time. We are to live with an expectancy. We are to live with an alertness. We are to live with a watchfulness. Do you see how the return of the Lord is to shape the way that we live? The scriptures tell us finally that it's purposeful. What's the purpose of the return of the Lord? Well, there's a a number of purposes, and I just want to light on a few. We may come back to this next week in a different context, but the coming of the Lord is an opportunity when all the believers will be gathered together with him. The dead in Christ will be raised. Those of us who are alive will be gathered together with Jesus. What a day it will be. For this we declare to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive, who are left until the coming of the Lord, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. But the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of a command, with the voice of an archangel, with the sound of a trumpet, and the dead in Christ will rise first. What a great reunion that will be. What a day that will be when my Jesus I shall see, when I look upon his face, the one who saved me by his grace. But Peter is going to remind us of another emphasis of that day, that with the coming of the Lord, it's also the day of judgment. It's the day of wrath. It's the day of God. It's the day when the world will be judged. It comes at the end of this age. Peter tells us that the unrighteous are kept under punishment until the day of judgment, which is the day the Lord comes in power. John speaks of this in Revelation 20. So it's purposeful in that it will bring to an end this world in which we know it, and judgment will take place, and then we will be ushered in to the new heaven and a new earth. It's a day in which the enemies of the Lord will be defeated. In 2 Thessalonians, Paul says, When that day comes, then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord will kill with a breath of his mouth. That's the power of our God. That's the purpose of his coming, is to gather the believers together and to judge the world and to destroy the evil one. And finally, it is a day in which this present world as we know it will come to an end. This is what Peter will tell us when we get to it in chapter 3, but based on his promise and the promise of his return, it's a day in which the heavens will pass away and the elements will burn and we will wait and be ushered into a new heaven and a new earth. So it's a purposeful coming. It's a cataclysmic event. It's an event like nothing that has ever taken place in this world yet. And finally, when's it going to happen? There's a lot we could say about this. Um, There's just a few things that I want to touch on when we think about when will it happen, as Peter is writing to these individuals and he's reminding them of the coming and of the power in the Lord. And one of the issues is when is he coming? Because there are those who are saying, he's been saying he's been coming for so long and he's not here. Well, Jesus says in Matthew 24, 36, but concerning that day and hour, nobody knows. Not the angels of heaven, not the Son, but the Father only. 
What the Bible tells us again and again and again, though, is that the coming of the Lord is near. It's near, and every day that, that passes, it is nearer. And because of the, the size of the event, because of the apocal nature of the event, it could be a far away event, but it appears near because of its size and because of its influence and because of its impact on this world. And so in light of that, we are to be ready at all times for his return. We are to watch. We are to wait. We are to be patient. As Jesus says again, take heed, for you do not know when the day will come. As I was thinking about this in my study a little bit earlier today, I was reading uh, Wayne Grudem, and Wayne Grudem just made this little comment. He said, to some extent then, the degree to which we actually long for Christ's return is a measure of the spiritual condition of our own lives at the moment. It also gives some measure of the degree to which we see the world as it really is, as God sees it, in bondage to sin and rebellion against God and in power, in the power of the evil one. Loved ones, Peter's word to those Early Christians is a word to us as well. That the coming of the Lord is going to be a coming in power and in glory and in might. And it may be delayed, and in fact it is delayed, but it will come. And as we anticipate that day, it should shape the way that we think. It should shape the way that we live. It should shape the way that we believe. It should cause us to turn our eyes from things of this world to eyes of the world to come and to fix on our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. This is not some cleverly devised tale. Its day is purposeful or its delay is purposeful, but know that the day of the Lord will come. May God help us to reflect on this more regularly and more consistently in our lives each day. Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you for Peter's reminder to us, and we will see it again and again over the next number of weeks as we wrestle through your word given to us through Peter. Father, as Peter reminded them, and he reminds us, he's written these things to them so that they might recall what the Bible says and the truth about the power of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, it is a real event that will take place in real time and in real history. Father, may we not shrink back from it. May we not be distracted from fixing our eyes upon the heavens and waiting to see the clouds part and to hear the trumpet of God and to hear the voice of Jesus like the voice of an archangel shout as he descends to earth and the end comes. Help us as we anticipate this day, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.